with that introduction, let's have a word of prayer again. Lord, bless us as we consider some important movements that arose again in 1844. Thank you for rising up people at that time to dig deeply into your word. Help us to be faithful stewards of your holy scriptures. May the Spirit guide us, the same Spirit that inspired the word, in Jesus' name, Amen. I've entitled this one, From God to Godzilla, The Scholars versus the Scriptures. I am right here where there's a lot of science. Now please note, too many times people have put science and evolution as though it's one thing. These are not necessarily the same. We believe in true good science, hence Loma Linda University. Medical science, how many of you are medical students or dentists uh, or, or doctors, anybody in the medical field or nurses or physical therapists or whatever, medical field people who are active or studying? Raise your hands high. I want to get an idea. Wow, that is a good 70% who are here. Okay. So we believe in good science, all right? But I want to talk a little bit about this issue here, the issue that has become a major contentious issue. So we're going to just get right into it here because we're, I'm going to finish this by about 5 or 10 after here, um, our time together uh, this afternoon. We, did start, we are starting a little late. It's the post-lunch blues, as we all know. But so we're going to aim for about 5, 10 after, so we can take about a 15-minute break and get back in here to start moving earlier. In 1831, when William Miller began to preach Bible prophecy, that same time, by the way, were all of you here for the last uh, session this morning? Who was not here? Who was not here the last session? Raise them high. Okay, for the benefit of the uh, a dozen hands that are here, just so you know what we're doing, we're c looking back at 1844. And noticing, incredibly, just as major Bible truths were being re-established, were being rediscovered amongst the faithful band of Bible believers, at the same time that these important biblical truths were being rediscovered, at the same time the devil, clearly, Satan, was raising up counter-movements. So last night we talked about the second coming, the true doctrine, and at the same time communism on the side, Started 1844, the collaboration between Marx and Engels in Paris, and of course 1844, the statements, the opiate of the people, religion, all those things happening in 1844. The counter to the second coming, because Marx then said, we don't need a second coming in essence. We can create heaven on earth, the utopia, the communist utopia that turned out to be a hell on earth instead of the heaven. We talked a little bit about that last evening, plus a second major counter-movement. Because if the devil cannot attack the church from the outside, he attacks from the inside. And so the best place, the best timing that the dispensationalist scholars can determine when this new theory arose, the theory of the rapture, was between 1843 and 1845. John Nelson Darby, according to dispensationalist scholars, say that John Nelson Darby invented this theory between 1843 and 1845, the theory that says believers will not go through a tribulation time, number one, not true according to the Bible. Number two, if you are not ready, they claim during the rapture, when the believers go up, you have a second chance to make your decision for Jesus. However, if you are not ready when Jesus comes in the clouds, because they split the second coming up into two parts, when Jesus comes, you have a third chance. When? During the first 100 years of the millennium, you can still repent and become a Christian. 
That is the rapture theory, some of the dangers involved in that. And by the way, that's not out of the uh, fictional novels called Left Behind. That is in the book on prophecy by the same authors, the book on prophecy called Are We Living in the End Times, published in 1999. And they say, this is not fictional. This is what we believe the Bible actually says prophetically. So the counter-movements to the second coming, communism and dispensationalism with its rapture theory. This morning we talked briefly about very interesting arising of new biblical uh, manuscripts. When? 1844, discovered by Constantine Tischendorf. Very interesting. Right there, 1844. And the question is, wait a minute. What are these new manuscripts doing? If these new manuscripts are the real Bible, which are the basis for the NIV, the RSV, and all of that, what happened for the last 1800 years? We mean to say that everybody was following the wrong Bible for 1800 years? Significant questions come up as a result of these newer manuscripts. And so this morning, I was suggesting, proposing, from my own personal study of the voluminous material of Ellen White, because Ellen White does use different Bible translations, something like 10 different manuscripts, uh, different translations or marginal readings. And my study of her is that consistently Ellen White used, and she did use these other translations, but she used them when they said what was already in the King James Version. Very interesting study. Now this afternoon, after the next session, I'm going to begin to answer some questions. There are eight or ten very good questions that will fill out and answer some of the things that I didn't have a chance to talk about this morning in our 45 minutes there. As you notice, I have to move a little fast, and that just, just not to try to keep you awake, but I have a lot to share here. So that covers what we've covered uh, in the last uh, two sessions. Now, let's move on to this session, about 35, 40 minutes here, going now 1831. William Miller had begun to preach uh, on Bible prophecy. William Miller, as you well know, was a Baptist farmer turned preacher. And, uh, but around the same time, the same year, another person, a young man, but then who had studied theology, who had gotten his degree in theology. His name? This is a picture. You don't recognize him. He was young. He didn't have the beard. You recognize him now. Charles Darwin. Okay, this is actually... Charles Darwin um, took a trip on uh, the Beagle. For five years, he traveled on this ship. And uh, there's the old picture. You know that picture, right? You've seen that one. Okay. Um, I thought I had a picture of the ship, the, uh, I guess I missed the ship. Well, somehow I missed the boat, but that's okay. Uh, I had it uh, just this <laughs> left without me. So anyway, we'll go on from there. But listen to what Darwin says. I'm going to quote now. Darwin says this. When he came back from that trip, those five years, Charles Darwin says this. He was, and I'm from his autobiography. By the way, I find the best thing to do is go to the original sources, right? Charles Darwin's autobiography says this. He says, I was, quote, quote, led to think much about religion on the strip, five years on the beagle. He says, I gradually came, by this time, to see that the Old Testament, from its manifestly false history of the world, was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus, or the beliefs of any barbarian. A theology graduate who concluded this. Then he says, by further reflection, I gradually came to disbelieve in Christianity as a divine revelation. And he says, in 1842, I allowed myself the first, the satisfaction of writing a very brief abstract of my theory, and this was enlarged, listen when, this was enlarged, Darwin says, during the summer of 18, what do you think? 
44. I enlarged this during the summer of 1844 into one of 230 pages. By late July 1844, Darwin had written out his full theory of evolution. If you go to the um, British Museum there, guess what? The scholars have a document called, what do you think? Darwin's 1844 sketch. The theory of evolution was sketched out and written out in complete the same time that Karl Marx and Frederick Engels met there in Paris and formed what the historian claims is their lifelong friendship that established communism. So there it was that very, very year. Okay? Now, this wasn't the first to, to suggest evolution. Robert Chambers had come out with a book in 1844 promoting uh, that. In fact, Charles Darwin's own grandfather, uh, Erasmus Darwin, 50 years earlier, had written a book called Zoonomia in which he promoted that. And if you go back two centuries, go back to the fourth century BC, that well-known Greek philosopher by the name of Aristotle, he had proposed an entire theory of evolution in which God had some initial work to do at the beginning. In fact, Aristotle was what some might call the first theistic evolutionist. Way back. So this is a common thing. Charles Darwin, however, happens to be recognized as the father of modern-day evolution because he had such a major impact. But the question is, why at this point in time? Why 1844? Why now? What else was happening in 1844? Why was this such an important thing to happen right here? So I'm going to transition, move over here, and share with you a little bit. Because right at this point in time, 1843, just before the year 1844 came along, there was a small group in the United States, Seventh-day Baptists. Not a big group. At that time, listen to this, 1843, there was Sunday legislation that was coming about. So what happens when people who keep the Sabbath hear about Sunday legislation? <laughs> they got serious. <laughs> okay, And they began to pray. And the General Conference of the Seventh-day Baptists got together and set aside a special day of fasting and prayer. They sent news to the... Sunday-keeping Baptist churches and encourage them to check out and read on this issue of the Seventh-day Sabbath. Well, make a long story short, again in 1844, a day of fasting and prayer was set aside that God would, and I'm quoting now, according to the Seventh-day Baptists, arise and plead for His Seventh-day Sabbath, for His Holy Sabbath day. This was all 1843, 1844. Now, it's around the same time, in the winter of 1844, you've heard of this lady. She was a Seventh-day Baptist living in New York. She went down to visit her daughter in New Hampshire. What was her name? Rachel Oaks. I figured you'd know that. That's right. Rachel Oaks. And she went to visit her daughter, also Rachel Oaks. And while she was visiting her there, there was no Sabbath-keeping church around. So Rachel Oaks Sr. decided to go to the Sunday-keeping church. There was a Methodist minister who believed in the Millerite message. His name was Frederick Wheeler. And Frederick Wheeler was serving communion that Sunday. But before he served communion, Frederick Wheeler said the following words. Listen to this. All who, who confess communion with Christ in such a service as this should be ready to obey God and keep his commandments in all things. And Mrs. Oak says she had a hard time keeping herself in her seat. She was going to get up and say, Pastor Wheeler, you better not take that communion until you keep the seventh-day Sabbath. But she kind of decided, you know, it's better, by the way. Remember this, very important, folks. Truth is truth, but you must share it in a loving, appropriate way and time. 
Okay? Otherwise, you can bowl people over, you can anger people. It's not just telling the truth. Paul speaks about telling the truth in what? In love. Ephesians chapter 4. That's right. Speak the truth in love. So Mrs. Wheeler kept, I mean, Mrs. Uh, Oaks kept her seat. But right after the service, later on, Frederick Wheeler came to visit their home. And then she said, Pastor Wheeler, I must tell you, I had a hard time staying in my seat today. Why, Sister Oaks? She, she, she told him what he said, and then she said, you better learn about the Seventh-day Sabbath. Well, Frederick Wheeler was a sincere man. He went home some weeks later after deep study. He began to keep the Sabbath, March 1844. Here was an Adventist Sabbath keeper. A Sabbath-keeping Adventist? Have you heard of them before? Yes, this was Frederick Wheeler in 1844. He was believing that Jesus is coming and he began to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath at the same time. And incidentally, of that church there, that very church where Wheeler was the pastor, there were 60 members who went through the great disappointment. Guess what? Two-thirds, as they talk about a two-thirds majority, 40 of those people who went through the great disappointment became the nucleus of what later became the first ever Seventh-day Adventist church from one lady who knew to keep quiet at the right time and to speak kindly at the right time, Mrs. Rachel, Rachel Oaks. Now, at the same time, there was another man by the name of uh, Thomas Preble, a Baptist preacher, also a Millerite. He also came across this uh, issue of the Sabbath from New Hampshire, and he accepted it, August 1844, and he wrote a Millerite in a Millerite paper a few months later, The Hope of Israel. Joseph Bates saw this. He accepted the Sabbath, and Joseph Bates made it a lifelong mission to begin to share about this beautiful Sabbath reform message. So this is just a little background, all happening around the 1840s, specifically 1844, just at the same time that evolution was arising in a major way at the same time the Sabbath was being recaptured. In a sense, of course, we can say that the prayer of those Baptists was answered by God. So these things were happening simultaneously. Listen to Jerome Clark. Jerome Clark, this, uh, I believe he's passed away three or four years ago. He was a historian at Southern. Dr. Clark says, listen carefully, with the evolutionist, there is no need for a memorial of creation he doesn't believe in. Okay, Clark categorically states, carried to its ultimate conclusion, evolution destroys the Sabbath. Clark says it categorically. So what am I saying here to, this, to you folk this weekend is every one of the major doctrinal beliefs that God was recapturing through this small band of believers that didn't even have a name, the sanctuary we're going to talk about later on, the Sabbath, the state of the dead, uh, all of these second coming, every one of them was being attacked on the other side by a major counter-movement of Satan. Very interesting. Let me read. Ellen White says this. The infidel supposition that the events of the first week required indefinite periods for their accomplishment strikes directly at the foundation of the fourth commandment. Historian Clark observes, this phenomenon of the acceptance of the theory of evolution is inexplicable except in connection with prophetic movements. Evolution arose in 1844 as the counterfeit to the Sabbath and the Bible truth just at the time of the rise of the Advent movement. It, evolution, was born at the same time because Satan feared the Advent movement and did not want its truths to be taught. Interesting. Now this is not just me. That's why I want to quote well-established historians. I'm not a historian. I've simply collated the material. 
and put it together here. Dr. Ariel Roth, who I believe was here. Anybody ever met Dr. Roth? Eh? You know what I'm talking about. Dr. Ariel Roth says, I'm quoting now, our confidence that the Bible is the Word of God does not allow for such alternatives to biblical creationism as progressive creation. That's a nice term for evolution, by the way. Progressive creation. Theistic evolution or naturalistic evolution. We should not yield to fruitless speculation. As the people of the book, we have a special opportunity to represent the whole Bible, including its creation message, to a world that is adrift on the great question of how life began on this earth. Now, despite such clear categorical statements by historian, scientist, the prophet herself, amazingly, surprisingly, we have problems, folks, in our midst. And I guess I'm not telling you something that's surprising. How do I know? Three years ago, or is it four now? We're in year 2006. Time has gone quickly. 2002, I had the privilege of being invited together with two dozen. There were 25 of us theologians invited from around the world. Okay, And I just praise God I was included as one of the 25 theologians invited with scientists, administrators, and two or three pastors invited to the first international faith and science conference held in Utah um, not uh, long ago, not, not far from here. Okay, So here I was attending this conference. It was exciting. I was delighted. I was dejected. Why was I delighted? Delighted because I found out that there were serious in-depth studies that presented additional evidence that God created life on planet Earth in six consecutive, contiguous, 24-hour days. Nowadays, we cannot say six days, by the way. Okay? Six days doesn't mean six days. 20, 30 years ago, if, I, if we said God created the earth in six days, people understood. Nowadays, you must say God created the earth in six consecutive, contiguous, 24-hour days. <laughs> okay? That's the only way we can say, if, you know, nowadays you cannot say marriage. You must say monogamous, monogamous heterosexual, intrafaith marriage. <laughs> When I grew up, we would say, you know, marriage. But anyway, you know where we are and what time period we're living. So anyway, but I was also dejected. Because, why was I dejected? Because, believe it or not, some theologians were beginning now to promote and accept evolution. In fact, one well-known theologian, and we're not mentioning names here of people who disagree with the official position of the Adventist church, because we're not dealing with personalities. That's why I don't mention names of those who disagree. You'll notice that. Okay? In fact, in one of these books, I don't even put their names in the footnotes. You know why? Because my good friend, Dr. Pippum, he has names in the footnotes. And people said about his book, his footnotes read like a who's who of Seventh-day Adventist theologians. So when I did this last book now, I said, no more, no more names. No more names. So you won't find one name in the footnotes. How do you find the resources? I just say, Adventist Review and the name of the article. So you can still find it, but you will have to search to find who wrote the article. I've totally removed the names. I'm not here addressing people. Please notice. We're talking about principles and principalities. Okay? So that's the key issue here. But here's a well-known, well-respected theologian who said this. They asked him, said, Dr. So-and-so, what are you really saying? Incidentally, if you listen carefully, those who really don't espouse what we as Adventists espouse, they speak in such a way that it is hard to figure out what is being said. Okay? And here were the theologians and the scientists. And when he was finished his presentation among scholars, the scholars had to say to him, what are you really saying? 
Okay? And this is kind of almost amusing, but it's sad. Eventually, you know what he said? And I grabbed my pen, I wrote it down furiously, because he said this. When push comes to shove, and he has been, he has been a theologian in the Adventist church for 40 years. He said this, I'm quoting. When push comes to shove, I have to go with the scientific evidence. Now, I didn't say a scientist. What did I say? A theologian. And at that moment, I sat there and I wrestled and I said, is it a theologian? And at that moment, I came up with a new word. It's a neologism. It's not in the dictionary yet. I believe if we all start using it, it will eventually appear in the 11th or 12th edition of Merriam-Webster's. But I came up with a new word. I said, you know, I know the gentleman. I chatted with him. He's, uh, I consider him a friend. I said, he's not a theologian. He's an anthropologian. An anthropologian? Yes, it's somebody who takes human words as the final norm. Okay? Now, all of us have a choice. Either we are anthropologians, correct? Or we're theologians. Is God's word our final norm? Or is this is it? Or is it the word of human beings? That's the question we must ask ourselves. So, I was there, I saw what's happening, I'm aware of what's happening amongst some of us. I listened to the open discussion. I happened to be the secretary for a little group. Guess who was a member of my group? The man's name? Jan Paulson. Anybody know who he is? He's the general conference president. He was a member of our discussion group. Bill Mundy, Dr. Mundy at PUC was the chair of the group and I was the secretary. And so for the entire conference, I was there hacking away on my computer. Now, it's not a nice thing to be a secretary. You don't get to talk much. You just get to record what other people say. But you have to record it accurately to give reports. So here I was, a fascinating time, but a frustrating time to hear the direction that some of our people are going on this. In a nutshell, what do they say? Listen carefully. What do these theistic evolutionists say? Life evolved on this planet in a gradual, uniformitarian manner over millions or even billions of years. The biblical flood was not a global event. It was merely a local event. Oh yes, there was death, even before Adam and Eve sinned, is what they believe. And the God of the Bible, well, he was involved in some point in time, in some way. Okay, now by the way, that's a very interesting thing because in 1996, October 23, 1996, I turned on my television and there was Pope John Paul II publicly making an ex cathedra announcement. He said, from now onwards, Roman Catholics can believe in evolution. And so Roman Catholics have only accepted evolution in the last decade. Okay, this is a brand new thing. In the last decade, Roman Catholics were told they can now believe in evolution, that human beings evolved, but that God put an immortal soul in that evolved human being. That's, that's, that's public news. October 23, 1996, by Pope John Paul. You can go and check the websites and find it there. One of our scientists even wrote an article in which he says, I'm quoting, certainly God could have spoken the present world in and its life forms into existence as the ancient Hebrews thought. Which means, of course, he doesn't believe the Bible is inspired. They just thought that's what God did. Then this writer, an Adventist, says, Adventist scientist, it now appears that God may have done something even more breathtaking. What is that? Evolution. <sighs> yes, interesting. So the question is, who are we going to go with? Darwin or divine inspiration? That's the big question you have to answer and I have to answer today. Um, Clifford Goldstein, some of you read his writings. He writes very passionately and sometimes people don't like what he says. 
perhaps the way he says it, Clifford is very uh, forthright. Um, I've gotten to know him a little bit. Listen to what Clifford Goldstein says. Now, please, this is Clifford Goldstein. I'm not, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want to say it so punchy, <laughs> okay? But as you know, Clifford has his way to say things. But this is what Clifford says. And he's, he's a good writer. He says, those folk, those who don't believe in the biblical creation account, those folk don't worship the God of the Bible. For that God, the God of the Bible, didn't use a long, protracted, vicious, dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest paradigm, one that goes against everything he has taught us about love and self-sacrifice and then lied to us about it by claiming he created life here in six days when he didn't. Plus, that God didn't keep ask us to keep the seventh day today this, as a memorial, not to the six days of creation as he explicitly told us in his word, but to a brutal, hateful, merciless process that took millions of years. Of course, there were a lot of people that responded to Clifford's strong statement. And then Clifford wrote back, if evolution is true, here's the crux of his argument. And Clifford's right. I'm not saying the way he said it, okay? He writes quite powerfully. But his thought, his concept is biblical. Cliff says, if evolution is true, then the Adam and Eve story becomes null and void. If that's null and void, what happens to the fall into sin? Without the fall, the cross of Jesus Christ becomes an empty gesture, which destroys any grounds for the second coming. Think about that. So Goldstein correctly connects evolution with the fall into sin, salvation, second coming, obviously the Sabbath, these things are all connected. And you know what's interesting? Listen to this, folks. Not just Goldstein. Let me quote. Has anybody heard of Hans King? Hans King is a liberal Catholic theologian. So liberal that John Paul had, he had him kicked out through Ratzinger, the present Pope. Okay? They kicked him out. They said, you are too liberal to be a Catholic. And so Hans King was removed from his post of teaching. Listen to Hans King. Hans King says, and he's quoting uh, Moormann here, the notion of the traditional view of redemption, the very thing Clough just mentioned, and ransom from the consequence of Adam's fall is nonsense for anyone who knows about the evolutionary background to human existence in the modern world. Liberal theologian says, you want to, if you believe in the Bible, you cannot believe in evolutionary concepts. Eugene Blanche, retired Emory professor of religion, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, says, the traditional physical understanding of it as a concrete historical event, the real resurrection of Jesus, makes no sense in a world of the Big Bang and 16 billion years of evolution. Simple terms, the liberal scholars out there say, you either accept the Bible to be true on salvation, on the Sabbath, on the second coming, on the resurrection, or you accept evolution. You cannot have it both ways. Those are non-Adventist scholars, folk, who pointed out, they say there is no middle road, there is no middle ground whatsoever. You simply have to accept what the, the, uh, the Bible says, otherwise you go with evolution. There is no middle way. I want to go, do a quick um, scan through some of these incredible pictures here. NASA, by the way, is raising $40 million on a 10-year program to pick up some message from outer space. Okay? Very interesting material that a, a friend of mine who is an ophthalmologist, he used to teach here at Loma Linda University, uh, and he has helped to put some of these slides together for me. Is there some message of hope from beyond the stars? I'm going to sc scroll through this in five minutes here. So let's take a journey. He takes us with, of course, the famous three. Who is that? 
Neil Armstrong, okay, Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins, and uh, quickly a trip onto the moon. Is not God in the height of heaven, and behold, the height of the stars, how high they are? So let's just, uh, I'm going to scroll through some of these incredible pictures here. By the way, here is Mount Palomar, and so if you want to get an idea of how immense things are, uh, one million galaxies are in the bowl of the Big Dipper alone. One million galaxies. Can you get that? The host of heaven, Jeremiah says, cannot be numbered, okay? 200 billion stars. Now, I shared with you when I was here last time that the latest material I found, there were 70,000, okay, sextillion stars. Remember that? Ten times as many stars as are on the... All, if you add up all the grains of sand on all the oceans of the world and all the deserts combined, that's how many stars they're able to now estimate they are. Incredible. Okay? The galaxy, it's our home in the universe is a spiral of 200, what's that? 200,000, no, 200,000 billion stars. See, I can't even say that, whatever it is. You know what I mean. Okay? A fiery, Pinwheel, okay, incredible. Here's the picture of the sand of the sea. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. I also calculated how long it will take to call them all by name. Remember that? <laughs> if you'll remember, I said, if God calls every star by name two per half second, it would take 200,000 years just to name all the stars, okay? So this is just a quick idea. Who upholds the, who holds the universe? In him and through him, the universe is one harmonious whole. There's a book out called Wonder Worlds that has this incredible statement. Mere matter cannot be endowed with such capacity. The universe is not a haphazard aggregation of accidental bodies moving without system or order. It is the work of omnipotence. I already mentioned this uh, well-known scholar uh, who had a change of heart. These are the words of Napoleon. Gentlemen, who made all those stars? The heavens declare, read it with me, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You can thrive in the tough times ahead if you become acquainted with God. And of course the Bible says, now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. His works indicate his concern. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to scroll through quickly. He hangs the earth on nothing. Job 26 verse 7 tells us the tides flow in and out on time. Look at some of these incredible pictures. Unfortunately it's not dark enough so you cannot see them well enough. But you've seen some of the beauties of nature. The ecosystem is perfectly balanced. Water is continuously recycled. Some of you know much more about this than I even would dream of. The water we drink is older than the pyramids. Thanks. Okay. That's a helpful there. Some more pictures here. Uh, of course, nitrogen, oxygen, argon, carbon dioxide. Everything is perfectly balanced. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind, Job says. Some of these incredible pictures. And by the way, I was just down at the Grand Canyon on Monday. Oh, incredible. I didn't have time to look very much because I was trying to make sure I wasn't going to trip. I, I took a trip down to the Colorado River. It was so awesome. In a few moments, I did have a chance to look around at the incredible canyon. I, just, I even thought about the flood. I looked at the way those layers were there and said, oh, it was awesome just to spend time on Monday down there in the canyon um, 
It was what a wonderful trip. Of course, the fruit trees and everything. God's design is seen in a snowflake here. Intelligent design reveals an intelligent designer. Remember I told you about Dr. What's his name? Anthony Flew. Dr. Anthony Flew, who after 50 years of saying there is no God, now says there must be a God because of the design. And guess what? The evolutionists are saying, oh, he's got Alzheimer's. <laughs> he's losing his mind. <laughs> he's getting old. <laughs> That's the only way you can get around somebody who, after 15 years, 50 years, Dr. Flew says, there is nothing else that you can use, but it has to be a designer. Now, he says, I'm not saying I'm a Christian. I'm more like a deist, but he's moving. <laughs> but the evolutionist doesn't want to do with him now. But ask the animals and they will tell, teach you. Or the birds of the air and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you. These are just some of the things. Or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Job chapter 12. Incredible pictures that, uh, of, of the beauty in nature. You can thrive in tough times ahead if you sense his personal concern. I, I share with you some very short story. I was a, a college student. My dad had been a pastor, by the way. He came uh, back from working as a missionary on the island of St. Helena. I just thought of the story right here. And when he came back, he said, Ron, I'm quitting the ministry. And he had his reasons. And, and then he said, and I cannot help you in school next year. By the way, just in case I forget, good news. Later on, when he was 80 years of age, he was re-employed. <laughs> back into the ministry. Re-employed. To ask to, to work again for the Lord. And he loves working for the Lord. So my dad anyway. But he, so I had to go back and find my way through college. And uh, so I started, I, was, I really was penniless. Tough times. You know what I did? I took a pic, two, I four pictures and I put them on my closet door as a visual reminder of God's leading and, and not to worry. God will take me through the tough times. Do you believe that? You've got to remember the way the Lord has led you in the past. Okay? In, except we shall forget the way the Lord has led us in the past. Do you know that statement? We have, if you know it, say it with me. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and His teaching in our past history. I'm going to put it on the screen just uh, in our next session, I believe it is. So, God is there. You know enough about this. I'm just going to squeeze, uh, squeeze through the heart. Okay, a year again, 100 billion brain cells. I got the figure right this time, right? Uh, the, the baby, here we see that life in all its fullness reveals a loving, all-powerful, magnificent God. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. From beyond the stars, the message comes, God cares for you. You can thrive in tough times ahead if you place your life in His hands. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I wake, I'm still with thee. You can thrive in the tough times ahead if you're acquainted with God, you sense His personal concern, you place your life in His hands, you discover His love in His Word. There's the bottom line. Behold, I am with you, for I will not leave you. This is what uh, the promise was given to Abraham. It's the same promise to me and to you. And before we get to our last slide, I don't want to share with you. I want to just round up the session. I promised you I'd be done by five after. If somebody can turn at least these lights on so I can see here. I want to finish off some important material. Thanks. Okay, good. Yeah, put them all on so I can see who's fallen asleep while the lights were out here. <laughs> okay. You know what's interesting? You know what's interesting? This is what's fascinating. If you hear scholars, 
debating and saying, well, have you heard people say, Genesis 1 and 2, that's poetry. That's not prose. That's not literal language. That's not historical record. Shall I read to you? Have you heard of the University of Oxford in England? Okay, listen to Dr. James Barr, professor of Hebrew, not an Adventist, James Barr, professor of Hebrew at Oxford University, wrote this. Before he moved to the United States, the brain drain across the pond, listen to what he says. So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament in any world-class University who does not believe, double negative, in other words, as far as I know, all professors at all, at any world-class university believes that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11, or writer, intended to convey to their readers the ideas that A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Not an Adventist. He says, that's what the Bible says. There's no way you can argue it. If you know Hebrew, it only reads one way. Okay? There's no question. Absolutely none. Number two, B, the figures. That's chronogenealogy. By the way, it's not simply genealogy. These are the chronogenealogies there. The figures contained in the Genesis genealogies, according to Dr. Barr, provide by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to the later stages of the biblical story. So when we talk about 6,000 years, Dr. Barr says basically, you're right. And number three, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and to extinguish all human and animal life except for those in the ark. In other words, guess what, folks? If you read the Bible, if you understand the Bible, there is no argument. So those who say, well, it's poetry, well, guess what? They don't know Hebrew, they don't know the Bible, they are concocting things out of thin air. According to Dr. Barr, according to all Old Testament scholars, at all respected Hebrew, at all universities, Dr. Barr says, and he was a foremost scholar at the University of Oxford, so what have they done? You know what's interesting? I just got this week a letter from David Shin. Anybody know David Shin? I thought I'd see some hands. He's a young pastor. And he sent this to me. He said, uh, Dr. Dupre, I recently posted this essay. I, did, I haven't heard of this because I'm not young. You know, I'm past 20, okay? There apparently, how many of you know of this? There is a grassroots forum of young adults discussing major issues. Anybody know about this grassroots forum? Where they discuss things online? One, two people, three, it's... Okay, please pass the word along. David Shin says to me, I just put this essay there. And David Shin correctly in this two-page essay nails it on the head. He's, he says... Nobody can argue that the Bible clearly says when the earth was created and what was created. But you know what's happening now, folks? David Chen nails it on the head. He said, unfortunately, among Seventh-day Adventists, second, third, fourth generation, erudite, brilliant Adventist young people, guess what the latest is? Well, well, the Bible is not the foundation of our faith. The Bible is just one, one of four sources from which we draw. It's one voice amongst four. The Bible, reason or science, experience and tradition. And all four have an equal voice. 
and you simply have to find out which ones are the most persuasive. A very insightful essay by David Shin that I read through. If it was time, I could read it. But we've got three minutes to wrap up here. As, as it. So what does David Shin end up by saying? If we're going to go this way with the latest brilliant, and David Shin says, oh, I wish I could write as brilliantly as some of my fellow young third generation Adventists. These guys are sharp, he says. But he says, if we go that way, what do we have left? Nothing. Nothing but a hollow heap of worthless traditions. That third generation Adventist, including myself, get warm fuzzies thinking about. And that's all. Zilch. That's how he says. He says, if you go with what is now being promoted as supposed educated view, you end up with nothing. Be careful. Be careful. Even George Wald. George Wald, Nobel Prize winner. Who gets Nobel Prizes? The serious scholars. George Wald said this. Harvard biochemist. Listen carefully. When it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities. Only two. That cuts out the theistic evolution. It's only two possibilities. Okay? Creation or spontaneous generation. Nice term for what? Evolution. There is not a third way. Spontaneous, this is what he says. This is George Wald. Harvard bio biochemist. Spontaneous generation, evolution, was disproved 100 years ago. Okay? But that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that, the biochemist says. We cannot accept that. On what? On philosophical grounds. And he ends up saying, listen to this, therefore we choose to believe the impossible. Scientists? Duh. Yeah, that's what the scientist says. We choose to believe the impossible because we don't want to believe this, not on scientific grounds, on what? On philosophical grounds. And he says, we choose to believe the impossible. What is it? That life arose spontaneously by chance. So what is George Wald saying? You've got a choice. You either believe the impossible or you believe the God of everything that is possible. That's what I'm adding. You see, simple choice. George Wald. It's like, wow. It's fascinating when you read what's happening out there, folks. There are people who are aware. And I want to simply make an appeal to you here in the last minute. We have a simple choice. A very simple choice. I put it on the screen. That's this way. Um, Christ welcomes you with open arms. And here is your choice. Darwin's ideas or what? Divine inspiration. Simple choice. You have to make your choice where you want to be. Are you going to go with what God has said or not? Now I know, I know it's, it's hard for some of the young people. It's, some of, it's very difficult within our uh, institutions even sometimes. It's difficult out there. But I want to ask you to pray for our young people to pray for our leaders, to pray for our theologians, to pray for our scientists. It's not easy. I know. I'm sitting in those committees. I not only sat in the committee, one of those scientists, myself and another theologian, we spent a lot of time with. I spent more time, I wish I could have said his name now, I spent more time with the people who are claiming to be Adventists but who are committed to evolution than with my friends because I wanted to know them. I wanted to understand them. Spent a lot of time with them. So, 
We have to pray for them. We are not here condemning. Please note, we want to challenge them to be, if you want to be, true scientists. Go with science rather than believe the impossible. Okay? And there are people out there, even Dr. Anthony Flew now is saying, the evidence is overwhelming, there is a divine designer. I just want to mention one more thing here. I just came across an interesting article published March 23, 2006. My friend of almost 30 years, Roy Adams. Heard of Roy Adams? Review and Herald. Okay, I got to, um, I've known Roy since the 70s. Put this in. Did you know what? Evolution Sunday. Are you aware of that? The churches, mainline churches, got together, hundreds of them across the United States, because there are 10,000 clergy who are now promoting, accepting evolution. And so here it is. Roy Adams says, this is weird, folks. Weird. How can this be? Is someone pulling a prank? Churches, Christian churches, celebrating Charles Darwin? No, I wasn't dreaming, Roy Adams says. This was actually listed. And, and he talks about it a little, little shortly here. But let me end off with what Roy says. Darwin's theory holds, and he's quoting somebody else, that life on earth, including humans, shares common ancestry developed over millions of years through the mechanism of natural selection and random mutation. And then he ends with this paragraph. Listen carefully. Roy says, isn't it curious? God at the creation gave us the Sabbath to remind us of his creative work. In time, certain of his followers changed the observance from Sabbath to Sunday. Now, these clergy boldly are using Sunday to celebrate evolution. And then Roy Adams ends up with this one sentence. Listen carefully. There's got to be a supernatural mastermind behind a twist like that. Evolution Sunday, it makes sense. Evolution Sunday, the Bible Sabbath. We have a simple choice. Either Darwin's ideas or divine inspiration. Lord, you see the hands being raised. You know our desires. We want to dig more. We want to study further. And we want to pray especially for our young people who are wrestling with serious issues, difficult decisions, and, and tough uh, theories. I want to pray for our scientists especially, Lord. Bless them. Some of them are struggling with issues. Others are finding more and more uh, support for intelligent design, evidences of your mighty guiding hand. Bless those who are struggling in whether theologian or scientist or administrator. Lord, I pray that they will see enough evidence just as we can see around us as the heavens declare your glory. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing about your mighty power. Help us to be faithful to you because we don't want to believe the impossible or nothing. We believe in the creator God of the universe. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's take a 15-minute break.